The following episode will feature a professor of mine, Dr. Julia Scully, who is a faculty lecturer in the Department of Art History and Communications at McGill University. She received her PhD from Queens University and her MA from McGill. Dr. Skelly actually piqued my interest in this particular piece and controversy, and thus I've asked her to explain in detail its formalistic features and the way it was received in American politics. I asked Dr. Skelly several questions about how it was exactly different formalistic parts of the piece possibly interacted with society and why she thinks that the Christian right was extremely taken aback by this piece. I think this conversation is extremely enlightening in terms of how art interacts with politics and why we should care so much about censorship. Okay, welcome Dr. Skelly. Thank you. Um, we will just start right off the bat um, with talking about Voynerovich's piece. Okay. I really want to start off by possibly you explaining, well, I guess let's start off by explaining how I got involved in this piece. Um, it was introduced to me by you in um, Introduction to Contemporary Art last summer. Okay. And so you definitely piqued my interest. But I was hoping that you could really just give us an outline of A, what the piece is in general and what it looks like inside this exhibition. Okay, so uh, I have seen this work installed, but I saw it in March at the uh, Morris and Helen Belkin Gallery at the University of British Columbia. So I have seen it installed, but I didn't have the opportunity to go to the hide and seek uh, desire and difference in American art exhibition in 2010 uh, when it was censored. But I did see it um, in March of 2020. And uh, certainly, uh, I've read quite a bit about it and seeing it in a gallery setting um, is a really powerful experience. It was um, set up so it was on a large screen rather than a, a small screen, which is um, how some of his other videos were installed at um, the Vancouver Gallery. And I think for me, um, as a uh, non-Christian individual and a feminist uh, art historian, I definitely I definitely do see this work as an incredibly powerful, empathetic work. So it is a, a film, but it's a kind of a, an incomplete film, right? It's a film in progress that uh, the artist filmed on a beach in Mexico in 1986. And the work, of course, uh, is often, um, certainly in exhibition catalogs, is uh, presented as more of a still image rather than a film. Some uh, people don't necessarily know it's from a film. They think it's uh, simply a photograph, right? So it does function differently um, as a still image. It obviously depicts a crucifix on uh, a beach with ants crawling over it. But as a film, there is that sense of temporality and movement um, and the kind of... Um, uh, 
almost abject feeling of having ants crawl on your body. So I think the artist certainly, his goal, his objective was to create empathy for queer individuals and specifically um, individuals with HIV AIDS in the 1980s, given the lack of empathy and indeed the very violent discourse around uh, queer individuals in the States in the 1980s. So it is a powerful work um, emotionally and uh, it does give a sense of uh, just kind of a bodily um, engagement, right? A phenomenological engagement with the work. It's not just about vision. It's about the sense of touch, about the haptic, but also hugely about emotions, right? It's asking something from us in terms of our responsibility to fellow humans. And so again, as a non-Christian, I have a very, very strong sense that this is a work of beauty and love and empathy. And I, I personally cannot, perhaps ironically, I cannot empathize with um, right-wing individuals who find this work so threatening and so horrifying. Um, given that it does involve Christian iconography and specifically the crucifixion. Um, certainly, um, it's part of this history in the States starting in the 1980s with identity politics and censorship about or around art, um, that depicted, um, queer individuals, blood, um, suffering, uh, etc. And Jennifer Doyle in her book, um, Hold It Against Me, discusses a range of works um, that were censored in the 1980s, including uh, Fire in My Belly. So certainly, um, I, not to put too fine a point on it, I find it a gross misunderstanding of the work to see it as a anti-Christian work. If anything, the artist is embracing Christian iconography in order to create um, depictions of a, a kind of allegorical or metaphorical depiction of the suffering of queer individuals with HIV AIDS in the 1980s um, that asks his viewers to have empathy for these individuals. And the fact that it was censored not only in the 80s, or that it created a lot of anger and fear in the 1980s amongst the right-wing um, community, uh, right-wing right -wing Catholic community in particular, but then was actually censored in 2010, it does seem absurd to me, or it seemed absurd to me in 2010, but given the last four years in the States, uh, things have become clearer for me, i.e. there is a lot of anger and fear in America. And it's been there from the very beginning. Do you think that this exhibition and specifically this piece brought out this fear that had been hiding and this was a way to almost bring out their anger against the community? I mean, that's an interesting question. And there is a way that it was um, an anchor or even a scapegoat, right? And I think, again, when Trump was elected in 2016, uh, he it's not that he created racists or homophobic or transphobic individuals. It's that those individuals were always and have always been in the States. And I say this as a Canadian, mm -hmm. so I'm on the outside looking in. 
uh, those individuals have always been there. And the just the sheer hatred for uh, black individuals that we've been seeing in the States the last four years has always been there. It just had to go underground or be coded and hidden. And Trump galvanized individuals who are terribly, terribly afraid of uh, people of color and queer people and those incredibly vulnerable, marginalized individuals like uh, trans folks. And so I, I certainly do think that 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 homophobia and fear and rage, if anything, was already there in the ni- late 1980s. Um, but it had to go underground in a certain way or uh, become less or be less um, explicit after um, a certain point, I guess, in the 90s um, when, and I, I don't say this as a negative thing, but when political, correct, political correctness became more um, uh, de rigueur in the States, uh, Again, we can see the way that that was that that homophobia and anger and fear was always there, right? It was always there. It had just gone underground to a certain extent. And it, the, in 2010, with that particular artwork, which again is so, um, I think the artist did intend it to communicate his anger, but I also see it as such a loving work, so full of compassion, and what. The, the Christian right saw was um, a sacrilegious image that conflated the suffering of Christ with queer individuals, which is absolutely what the artist intended. Um, he also used that strategy in depictions of uh, drug use and drug addiction in some of his works, uh, using Christian iconography to try to to evoke empathy in his viewers for addicted individuals. And am I so, right in saying that he identified as a Christian at a point in his life and possibly up to, until the end, or is that? I'm not sure. I'm really not sure about that. Um, I haven't come across that, and he may well have been born into a Christian family, mm-hmm. but clearly was well-versed in Christian iconography, right? right? And so we see that in a a number of works by queer artists appropriating Christian iconography for um, uh, various purposes, but in his work, both in terms of uh, referencing individuals with HIV, AIDS, and indeed drug users slash drug addicts, his strategy of uh, embracing Christian iconography was to try to evoke empathy and compassion in his viewers. And I think the fact that the Christian right didn't feel empathy or compassion, but rather anger um, and hatred mm-hmm. um, is illuminating um, just in terms of how deeply that homophobia is rooted in some American households and some American communities. Um, So, yes, whether or not he identified as Christian, like many queer artists, he uh, was using this uh, iconography because it was recognizable, right, in terms of suffering. Um, But the work itself 
uh, is so innocuous, even while it's powerful. Uh, and I think, again, going back to your question, it was uh, a lightning rod in a way or a scapegoat for the Christian right to focus on, to focus their anger on, to focus their perhaps sense of losing their status in America. I don't know. Uh, I don't know really what the root of all of that fear and anger is exactly. Um, but I think if anything, it was more of a symbol, right? Because it really, let's be honest, does not hurt a single soul. If, and if anything, it could help individuals materially if it, um, if individuals allowed themselves to see um, the work in terms of empathy and compassion. But it, that work has not and cannot hurt a single person. And yet the, the, the demand for it to be removed um, keeps hatred going, right? It, it shows that when hatred and homophobia are articulated loud enough, people will get what they want. And so we see that now still in the States, unfortunately, just with the ever-increasing um, rhetoric of hatred and um, uh, the lack of empathy and compassion towards not only queer individuals, trans uh, people, and uh, gender non-conforming people, but of course, people of color as well. Right, I think for me, the most shocking instance of this and the showing of the homophobic rhetoric in this instance is i mean the initial article written about this was titled i can read the title right here smithsonian christmas season exhibit features aunt Crawford jesus naked brothers kissing genitalia and ellen degeneres grabbing her breasts and i think the fact that that was the punchline at the very beginning of this controversy really shows the hatred and the homophobia and the fear that we... Yeah. I think the next question I have for you is in the politics surrounding this after it was picked up by the press and by the Catholic League, Yeah. the idea around this piece and why it was so, I guess, hurtful for a lot of Christians as they said that it doesn't represent a lot of American families. And I know this is something that Jonathan Katz talked about a lot and Julia Haas talked a lot about is that this rejection of the queer identity in American families. And I'm not sure if you can talk a little bit about if this you think was Voinerovich's intentions or what really why they thought that this was so unrepresentative of American families? Well, I mean, again, this idea that gay people are ruining the family is so absurd to me. Um, it really, again, it is such um, a fearful perspective or perception of gay individuals, whether those gay individuals want to get married or not, right? And again, like this work does not depict human subjects except a crucified Christ. It does not re represent families, nor does it threaten families. So it is 
again, um, it was read as not representing heteronormative families, even though it had nothing to do with heteronormative families or queer families for that instance. What it was symbolically referencing was indeed the suffering of queer individuals in that particular moment. And so again, like, uh, as a non-Christian, and I, I, <clears throat> I have my own strong opinions about the institution of marriage and the family unit. Uh, I'm not interested in either of them. So I'm obviously going to see his work uh, differently mm -hmm. than Christian viewers, right-wing viewers. And that is okay. We can look at art differently, and that's okay. The problem is not the art. The problem is when art is seen as threatening the viewer, and the viewer then tries to harm someone else uh, as a way to assuage their anxiety or fear or insecurities. And so that was a little unclear, but again, the censorship of that work in 2010, uh, it sent a message to queer individuals in the States that was, you are still unacceptable. You are still wrong and you are not welcome into the gallery. You are not welcome in the Smithsonian and you are not welcome in America. Because again, actions, um, have consequences, right? Actions have consequences. Art is not produced in a vacuum, nor is it censored in a vacuum. It has consequences when works that are meant to evoke empathy and compassion are literally taken down off the wall. Um, that sends a really loud message to queer individuals that you are not acceptable the way you are. It reminds me of a really great quote from the book that we are reading actually for your course right now, Policing Black Lives. Okay. Um, no, 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 sorry. The other book for your other class that I am taking. I am an actual groupie of yours. Okay. Um, uh, in Towards an African Canadian Art History. Yes. Um, Charmaine Nelson says this incredible quote and I'm paraphrasing right now, but she says something around the lines as when art is placed in the government or in institutions, they allow the acceptance or the, I think it's the neglection of an entire race or community yeah. of people. I mean, that's yeah. completely paraphrased, but. But you, you hit the nail on the head for sure. <laughs> Thank you. But I think that really, it it speaks truth to, truth to what happened in this scenario, which is the government, members of our government, my government, telling yeah. an entire marginalized group of our country that they were not welcomed. And it's definitely, the more I learn about this, this entire controversy, the more it saddens me about my country. Yeah, and I mean, again, like art is inextricably tied with not only humans and individuals, but how individuals exist in the world and how they are treated. So again, if 
this artwork had been censored in 2010, but uh, queer individuals had been treated with um, compassion in the 1980s. Uh, it wouldn't be such a kind of horrifying display of um, um, harmful rhetoric, right? Uh, there's so much fear, for example, to make it a more specific case, there's so much fear towards trans individuals in 2020 still. And we see this with J.K. Rowling and her ilk. There's so much fear and hatred towards trans individuals. And yet trans individuals are the ones who are the most vulnerable to murder and material violence. So again, that kind of censorship has consequences. Just like art produced by queer artists that is intended to open space for queer viewers to see themselves has material consequences and psychological and mental and emotional consequences. So art, again, is not detached from lived experience, um, just as uh, exhibitions aren't detached from lived experience. And that's why that, that, that decision by the Smithsonian's secretary, right, not a curator, not the museum's director, the Smithsonian's secretary made that final decision mm -hmm. because of basically uh, fear of displeasing the Christian right. Mm -hmm. So that decision to take that work down off the wall or to stop projecting it against a wall um, is inextricably bound up with the material violence towards queer individuals in the states right and i mean jonathan katz compares this to tyranny and i don't, i'm not sure if i necessarily see it as tyranny but i think it shows the power of certain individuals voices versus others yeah i'm more sympathetic to that just because uh if we look at how the nazis used art mm. and stole art mm. and identified certain artworks as degenerate mm -hmm. and then murdered women and men who they identified as degenerate. Mm. I think it's important not to forget the way that fascist governments both use art as propaganda and destroy art that they perceive as threatening. So again, Trump is actively, actively, actively trying to become a dictator in the States right now. We've seen this coming for four years, but now he's actively trying to become a dictator by um, uh, defending yet. this argument that Biden won or stole the election through fraud, right? So I... <laughs> I hope it doesn't come to the point where uh, in America um, artworks are burned and then bodies are burned. There's that famous quotation by the Jewish poet who said, where books are burned, bodies will eventually be burned. And indeed, that's what happened in Nazi Germany, right? right. God forbid that happen in the States. Nonetheless, we have examples of censorship of art that's perceived as threatening because it's produced by... Uh, a queer artist um, and meant to 
um, reference the suffering of other queer individuals. That is a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. If not to burning bodies, then it's 100% tied to the fact that uh, trans individuals and particularly trans women of color are murdered on a regular basis. And that's of course not even to mention um, the, the obsession with visual depictions of violence towards black people and the uh, inextricably tied phenomenon of police brutality and murder of black individuals. So I'm, I'm bringing in a, a few different things here, but again, uh, art, visual culture, visual material is inextricably linked with uh, the lived experiences of marginalized individuals. And those individuals who are perceived and represented as the most threatening are the most vulnerable to violence. Right. Well, I think in closing remarks, um, my last question for you is what precedent do you think this sets and was set in 2010 when this decision was made before Trump, before we see outright homophobia in 2010 yeah no that's a great point right Uh, and that again people (laughs) some people were shocked and appalled that trump was elected but interestingly black people were not and i would speculate that queer people also were not that surprised because they knew they knew what america actually had hidden in its its nooks and crannies right um and so yeah that censorship occurred uh six years before trump was voted in and um when that uh work was initially produced in 1986 that unfinished film uh reagan refused to say aids in public queer individuals suffered and died unnecessarily uh, and were stigmatized at the same time, right? So there's these these individuals who um, not only uh, died from AIDS, they died as stigmatized, pathologized individuals who um, suffered from hate crimes. And I know hate crimes still occur, right? So this is, um, again, it's not like, things are um, that different than they were in 1986. So the censorship occurred in 2010. Um, The precedent, of course, is that if the Christian right yell loud enough, they'll get what they want. And I think that's what they, (laughs) I think that's what we're seeing right now with Trump and his base saying the election was stolen. They've been told and they've been taught through various um, actions that if they shout loud enough, if they send enough death threats, I always find it so incredibly ironic that, and it's not all Christians, sure, I guess I'll just say that for the sake of being a bit more nuanced, but it's pretty shocking that um, so much uh, hatred and uh, including death threats comes out of a community who preaches uh, Christ's love. Um, I think, again, what we're seeing is this inevitable, um, 
the inevitable inevitable consequences of this kind of censorship, which is, again, if the Christian right are loud enough and um, make enough noise, whether in the pulpit or on social media, they will get what they want. And unfortunately, that includes acts of violence in the name of um, Trump, in the name of um, whatever coded phrase they're using for white supremacy. Okay. Well, <laughs> on that, I want to thank yeah. you so much for your contribution to this interesting project. 